This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Alex Steele here with you on a Wednesday afternoon. So really happy to have back with us Alyssa Rapp, CEO of Surgical Solutions, joining us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. And Alyssa has been great at providing us, Alex, with a real view of the front lines of this crisis uh, because she's got more than 200 employees who were working there in hospitals and health facilities. Alyssa, really nice to have you back with us. Jason and Alex, great to be with you today. Thanks for having me. All right. So I feel like the world has actually gotten worse since the last time we talked, certainly a lot of places across the United States. How worried are you, especially given the window that you have in terms of this healthcare system now being stretched to its capacity? So I think that um, worried isn't the word, perhaps concerned is better, only because I've seen our people on the front lines be as excellent, dedicated, and prepared as we would want them to be. The only benefit of time marching on as people are leveraging their experience and insight as frontline healthcare workers and coping with it. So our people and those I hear about are doing a great job. But my concern is that the systems themselves are going to be increasingly taxed. And listen, we've had more incidences of COVID on our own team in Houston in the last three weeks than we did in New York City at the peak of the first surge. So it's because of this snap, you know, rubber band effect of reopening without all of the social distancing and masks in place. We unfortunately know that weather doesn't play as much of a role as we had hoped in dampening uh, the virus transmission. So because of everything going on and without being overly political, we knew that there were mass gatherings due to the civil unrest. So with all of that closed down behavior, then fast reopening and then uh, uneven state by state responses, we're seeing many, many spikes. And I expect those to continue for the next six months. Can I ask the sensitive question as to why sure. the Sunbelt states weren't better prepared, even if they reopened at, quote unquote, the wrong time? It's like we knew that this was going to play out in New York in March. So I wonder, like, why isn't there a stockpile of stuff? Alex, I think it's a great question. I don't have the perfect answer for you. What I can say is I think that since 50 percent of the cases were concentrated in New York, there was such a uh, intense focus by the city, the state, and the healthcare hospitals and providers there to solve the crisis that they did the classic bell curve effect. And because the peak of the curve was so much lower in the Sun Belt states, I think they hoped. I think we all hoped, frankly, that they would just avert disaster and never get to that same peak point, local maximum. And unfortunately, no one is. Uh, this this disease doesn't discriminate. No one is. Uh, immune. So right. when they thought they had averted danger, and then unfortunately danger struck, they were they thought they were in the back nine, and mm-hmm. and no one is unfortunately yet. And so Alyssa, you know, one of the things that we've talked with you about before is this notion of the the holistic system in some ways. And while so many resources have been dedicated, obviously to treating COVID patients, 
there's a whole system out there and a whole population out there that has needs that go beyond COVID, some of which surgeries have been put off. Um, where are we in, in that calculus right now? And, and what are you seeing when you talk to your folks? So that, that I feel more optimistic about. Once people started rescheduling elective procedures, they started scheduling fast and furiously. And I think that um, that's really important for preventative health. I get as, as afraid about what the healthcare effects, the health effects and negative health effects, I should say, of not being seen and treated for preventative measures now, what those will be in 6, 12, 18 months. So I'm glad to see that our volumes were back up to 80 and 90% of historic levels for elective surgeries, for example, in places like Texas and Tennessee um, in June. Obviously, the next round of questions is where will they stabilize there given what's going on? They'll probably dip again and then hopefully come back. So I feel slightly optimistic, actually, about people's willingness to get back in there and get seen for what was considered quote-unquote elective. What I am concerned about on a, on a macro level is how these hospitals that typically operate at 3% margins yeah. in the best-case scenarios mm-hmm. are going to weather the next wave of the financial storm. And as self-serving as it is to say, I think that even if I were looking this at an arm's length, you want this notion of an outsourcing partner like Surgical Solutions and many others where they can really risk share economically and in terms of human capital and capital equipment, et cetera. If I were if I could wave a wand, it's that many hospital systems would enter into those kind of risk-sharing partnerships, strategic partnerships, so they could have another entity or team of people helping them weather the next storms, because unfortunately this one isn't over. So, I mean, aside from the obvious linkage with, with, uh, with, with surgical solutions, like what are some other good options? Because I have to wonder, like, which is it? Is it a demand or supply issue? Like you have all these people coming back and will you have the actual capacity? Like I have to have a procedure done and I had to wait like two months. Totally. <laughs> and I was like so, on the list. No, totally. Um, I think that it's both, right? And I think that the degree to which the federal government is doing creative things like making total joint procedures, those are orthopedic procedures where you would have something restorative, corrective, a knee, a hip, et cetera, to the degree that they're now going to be reimbursed through ambulatory surgery centers in and out, where you can go in and out in a day and you have to be there less time, which is better for you and better for them, but but the providers will still be reimbursed a similar way. I think the degree to which we can make it easier for people to have shorter hospital stays and, and do more you know, ambulatory surgery center work that'll be better for everyone. I think that could be a system shift that is a result of this. And needless to say, this isn't an original idea to me, but telemedicine is your friend. I mean, Mm -hmm. listen, if my kids have to go get a physical before getting back to school in the fall, I want that to be live. But if one of them has a, you know, a sore throat or an owie in their ear, do I really want to take them in right now? No. If if a pediatrician could see them, that would be a great thing. Yeah, just grab the iPhone for sure. All right. Alyssa Rapp, CEO of Surgical Solutions. Great to have you back with us. Really appreciate your time joining us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Well, I believe the technical term, Alex, is baller alert. We got a couple guys coming on next to talk about a great story, uh, a really important story as well. We haven't talked to Sean Don in a while. I've missed him. I follow him on Twitter, so I feel like I'm keeping up. Senior trade and globalization reporter for Bloomberg. He's joining us on the phone from Maine. Good for him. Mm -hmm. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's in Massachusetts. So Joel, this is a really important story and one that I feel like provide some much needed context about where we are in the economic aspect of this crisis. 
Uh, yeah, so a couple uh, weeks slash months ago now, uh, Sean was like, you know, I'm based in D.C. and I really want to get out of D.C. and get into, uh, you know, the heart of America and see what how this uh, crisis is really unfolding for for normal people. And Cleveland ended up being one of the places um, that he's gone. And the story that he published from there, I thought, was a really interesting look at um, a you know community that's really uh, uh, grasping for any sort of relief. And it gives um, a sense of of how you know two trillion dollar uh, 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 you know kind of effort. To, to kind of, you know, make the um, rescue, um, you know, from Congress with the CARES Act be something that was, you know, rooted in helping things. But it actually has left a lot of people uh, in the cold. And I think that was what Sean was really able to find in, in Cleveland. And, and Sean, you know, what, what, what jumped out at you? Because, it, you know, this is a city where there's a river that divides it east and west, and people on the east side, especially, this, these are black neighborhoods, they're really feeling it. Yeah, I mean, like you said, a couple months ago, I just was looking through the data, and I just happened to see the the, uh, the unemployment data for, for Cleveland, for the metro area. And what had happened in Cleveland in April was that literally 20% of the workers in the city had lost their jobs in a matter of weeks. You had an unemployment rate that had gone from a little bit above 3% to 23%, just in weeks. And most of those people were lower-income people. And I started thinking, I, I need to go find out what's happening and if they're getting the help that, uh, that they need. And all this help that people are talking about in Washington in terms of this enormous, and this really is a pretty unprecedented fiscal stimulus that's coming out of Washington, whether that's actually getting to the people who need it on the ground. And once you get to Cleveland, what you discover is that there is this divide that happens with the Cuyahoga River. Uh, on the east side of it, you have predominantly black neighborhoods, which really for decades now have been left behind uh, by, by, by the economy. And this time around, they're just not getting the help in the same way that uh, neighborhoods, predominantly white neighborhoods, the west of the river are. And that's a story about, you know, we're all talking about race in America and racial inequities and, and so on. Well, here it is right now happening again in terms of a rescue being rolled out by the government. If you go to the east side of Cleveland today, you will find lots of people who aren't seeing the help that lots of other people in America are. Yeah, it's really amazing, amazing reporting. I, I urge all of you to, 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 to listen to it, to look at it, to read it. So I, I guess my problem is, is that we know that they messed up in that respect, and now we're looking at another t- a stimulus, supposedly, maybe we're going to get before August 10th, and I'm wondering if we're ever going to be able to fix the things that we did to then help, and especially when you have uh, the extra money for unemployment ending uh, July 31st. I mean, h- how do we right the ship? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the first thing is that extra unemployment, there's no doubt that extra $600 a week that was included in the CARES Act, that's important for the ground, uh, for people on the ground on the east side of Cleveland. But what's also important, and in, in talking, uh, in work, reporting the story, I talked to Rob Portman, the Republican senator, and Sherrod Brown, the Democratic senator, two people who really were uh, heavily involved in pulling together the CARES Act. And they said they really want to get something in this next stimulus that's much more targeted at, at black-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses. And that really finds a way to get to these people who are, who are being left out, because they are being left out, and they recognize that. 
And so we'll have to wait and see if, if, if that happens. But, you know, there's there's a lot of need out there. Sean, um, I want to uh, talk about some of the characters that you got to meet um, on the east side of the river, especially uh, a pastor in, in a church. What, what are those experiences like? Yeah, so um, one of the people I ran into um, in, in my reporting was Miriam Scott. And Miriam is a, a really impressive woman. She's a corrections officer. She works overnight shifts at one of the Puyahuaca County uh, detention centers. Uh, and during the day, she runs the First Love Outreach Ministry, which is a tiny church um, in a part of Cleveland that literally is, is called the Forgotten Triangle. Um, and it is a, a part of Cleveland that where half of the people live under the poverty line. Three-quarters of the children in the zip code live under the U.S. poverty line, which is just a stunning uh, statistic. And Miriam Scott, is, she's been running this church on a, on a, on a shoestring, basically on $300, $400 a week in tithes, and she can't hold in-person services anymore, so that money's disappeared. She tried to go after a, 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 some, pro, some money from the, from the federal government for faith-based institutions, but she discovered that because she's a volunteer, she, and because there's no payroll associated with this church, she couldn't get any help. And she's not unemployed. She's working a, 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 she's working a job. She's working an overnight shift as a corrections officer. Uh, and she's, at the same time, she's kind of scraping it together, and she is feeding. Last Saturday, she fed over 600 people. And one Saturday in June, she, she gave out 20,000 pounds of food, which is more food almost than she gave out in all of 2019 for the church. She's doing incredibly hard work, and she's doing it with no help from the government. And it's, you know, it's these types of characters that you run into uh, on the east side of Cleveland, who are working really hard to help their communities to get through this crisis, and they're doing it with very little help, to no help from from the federal government. And you look at the stimulus that's going on in the economy, and you think about the people she serves and how vulnerable they are, and that is clearly one part of the economy that should be getting more help right. from Washington. And just isn't it just isn't and uh, a really nice piece of reporting as Alex pointed out Sean congratulations on this story it's a must read check it out at Bloomberg.com on the Bloomberg terminal or in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week that's Sean Donnan a senior trade reporter who left Washington to do some great reporting uh, there in Cleveland our thanks as well to Joel Weber the editor of Bloomberg Business Week all right let's do a little Business Week economics because when it comes to reopening the economy in any meaningful way Alex I think you and I can 100% agree on this both being parents schools they have to be reopened for the economy to be fully reopened. Please, Fair? please, please, but right? uh, not even the economy for my own sanity yes, exactly. and my husband's sanity. Exactly. And then also for the economy. And yes. So in that order, <laughs> uh, Emily Oster, she wrote a terrific piece for Bloomberg opinion about this, a professor of economics at Brown university and a Bloomberg opinion columnist. As I mentioned, she joins us on the phone from Providence. All right, Emily, you gave voice and, and maybe more importantly, gave some solutions to the problem that I think we are all obsessively thinking about. Tell us what you think and what you found as you sort of put pen to paper here. Yeah, so what I was what I was writing about was just how we're going to think about uh, working under the constraints that we seem to be facing uh, for the fall. So, you know, like you, I would very much like us all to be back in person if we can do that safely. It doesn't seem like school districts are necessarily going to be there. And so I think particularly in New York, 
you guys are not going to be in uh, in school every day. And so I was thinking a little bit about different solutions people could have, ranging from, you know, the kind of homeschooling that we've all been doing for this entire time period to kind of different market-based solutions. So should we all hire a governess like the 1% uh, or should we uh, should we think about sort of inter- intermediates and can we pod with other families and just trying to give people some ideas for, for how to move forward in what's obviously an incredibly challenging setup. Well, what I thought was interesting in the piece is that um, a, a lot of it is for those one percenters. Like you said, the governance, there's also the do-it-yourself, which homeschooling, which would oh, be really bad in my household. But then you got into different options like a babysitter co-op or market-based solutions. Can you take us through that, which is maybe more accessible to a broad variety of people? Yeah, so I think that the two things there were sort of one, talking about, like, let's say your kid is in school for two days a week uh, with a bunch of other kids in their class. Um, and they're you could think about hiring a babysitter uh, along with some other kids in the class. So, you know, rotating the kids around to your different houses or or apartments um, with some kind of supervision. Uh, Obviously, if you do that with six families, you know, that's six, one sixth of the cost of doing it, um, doing on your, on your own. Um, And then there are also, you know, my guess is I was actually just talking to somebody in LA this morning, runs an after school program and they're going to be running a lot of programming for kids um, who are would otherwise be in school. So there certainly will be some market-based solutions for this where your kid can be out of the house. Uh, those are going to be challenging in other ways, I think. And for that, you're talking about like the JCCs and the YMCAs of the world, right? Yeah, exactly. YMCAs, JCCs, all those kind of things. And so as you look across the country, I guess one of the other challenges here, Emily, is that even within a state like New York, you're going to have different uh, decisions being made sort of region by region, much less, you know, across the country. Uh, Is it feasible to think about, especially from an economic perspective, that some regions of the country and even some sub-regions of a state may be able to essentially thrive economically while others may be left behind owing to closures and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of what's, what's sort of been very odd about the economics of this is just the idea that, you know, we, we don't think of the U.S. as quite so segmented. And yet all of a sudden, you know, in this world, like the situation in Rhode Island is totally different from the situation in Texas or from Florida or from, or from New York. And I think that's going to mean that everybody's got to have um, got to have different solutions. But it is also going to mean that there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of, sort of inequality across places in how much your economy is going to be able to reopen. I mean, as you said, you know, school reopenings are kind of a key to to economic reopenings, and places where school is fully remote are going to have a fundamentally very different trajectory than places where school is in is in person. If the schools can then stay open, I think the hardest thing is going to be if they open and then they close again. That's going to be even even more challenging to adapt to. Uh, what I'm trying to get a handle on is like we we can talk for years about how horrible it is to have kids not in school on so many different levels, and I just can't quite get a read on like financially what we need to pump into each school to get them reopened safely. And anecdotally, I have a five-year-old, her kindergarten class had 26 kids in a 500 to 600 square foot room. So already like that class would have to be broken up into three classes. Like there, so there's different classrooms. Um, do we have a read on that yet? No, and I actually think this is one of the biggest challenges to making progress on this is that people have different ideas. You know, I have some ideas, people have some some other ideas, different kinds of staffing models, space models. Um, but it's clear all of these things are going to take resources. 
but I don't think we've had a lot of, uh, we've made a lot of efforts to like write down what is the budget. Um, you know, what different people do we need? How many of them do we need? Do we need two more if your class, kid's class needs to be in three different, in three different classrooms? Do we need three, you know, three teachers? What's the space we're going to use for that? How are we going to afford that, afford that space? I think part of the problem is once we write that down, the answer will be, you know, this is incredibly expensive. But I also think until we do that, we won't, uh, we won't know, you know, what are the pieces that are the most expensive uh, and, and what can we, what can we do? So I would really like to see more concrete numbers put to this. All right. Emily Oster, we're going to leave it there. Professor of economics at Brown University, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Her column, Parents Don't Have to Panic Over Part-Time School. It was one of the most read columns on the Bloomberg. Continues to get You're a kidding. ton of readership. It has spun around the web so many times, Alex, for all the obvious reasons, because people like you and me are trying to uh, figure this out both, as you said, for our own sanity, for the sake of the economy, for the sake of our kids. Humanity. Ways, humanity. I mean, <laughs> seriously. Real. I mean, you know, we think about, you know, and I have the the interesting perspective of both teenagers and a a, a sub uh, sub three year old who doesn't go to traditional school, obviously, yet. And and the the effect on families and listen, you and I are very fortunate to have the resources that we do. And I, I think a lot about folks who, who don't have those luxuries, too. Yeah, it's it, and, you know, yes, it, it's going to be horrible in terms of the social and, and inequality divide that we're going to see, particularly here in New York. And I look at my own personal circumstance, like we're going to be fine. My daughter's going to be fine. Like yes. We're going to take care of her. How many people can really say that? Yeah. And, and, and that's a long term setup. Like you can lose billions of dollars over your lifetime uh, as a whole group. Yes. Um, if you don't have the right education and that's going to make all the issues we see worse. Absolutely. All right. A really important issue. So check that out on the Bloomberg. Our thanks to Emily Oster. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly. And Alex Steele here with you. We are debating the merits and demerits of meat <laughs> right now as we get into this new segment. Bloomberg Green, we call it. Emily Chasen, sustainability editor, back with us for Bloomberg on the phone from New York City. All right. I have to say, Emily, the headline alone, low methane meat. I'm like, mm, all right, uh, that's here. But it's a stopgap. First of all, tell us what we're talking about. I have to say, I, I saw this on Twitter. I believe you or one of your colleagues put it out. So we're talking about Burger King to some extent, but this whole concept of low methane meat, this is basically like cows and gas, right? It's cow toots, dude. It's cow toots. Let's, cow just, toots. let's just call it. It's cow toots. Cow toots. <laughs> <laughs> just call it cow toots. That's what it is. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting because, you know, there was this big trend years ago toward organic meat. Um, and now people are thinking about, well, meat actually has a huge impact on the environment. It is a huge source of global emissions, probably just 9% um, from agriculture directly. And then if you think about the whole supply chain from like farm to fork, it's over a third of global emissions. And then it's going to get even more attention as we've been working really hard to get the electric sector and the transport sector emissions under control. So as those emissions fall, then the agriculture emissions get bigger and bigger and bigger. So what we're looking at here is, this sort of that realization from consumers and companies saying, well, I guess we can sell you low methane meat. It's like the new organic food label or low carbon meat. So how do you get them? How do you get their toots better? You laugh, but like, seriously, <laughs> this is what it is. Like, what do you, is it what you feed them? I mean, is it a certain type of cow? There is a ton of experimentation in the field right now, I guess. Um, 
Burger King just this week, they came out with a open source method um, that looks at lemongrass, and they say that lemongrass um, sort of makes cows' bellies happier. Um, there's, other people, there's other people trying seaweed and various food additives. Um, so, you know, if cows have happy bellies, then the planet will be happier also. Um, but it's it's only a limited solution, right? Because there's still going to be quite a lot of methane. Even if this can reduce methane by up to a third, there's still many years that cows are out there emitting methane versus, you know, a plant. Right. I, I dare say, I mean, and we will not go down this rabbit hole, but like th- this could be useful information, I think, for all sorts of things, especially I mean, I teenage boys. But um, Emily Chase, you eat I Domino's mean, pizza. There, that's true. <laughs> the ultimate, um, I mean, the ultimate solution here, as you just alluded to, when you talk about plants versus animals, is eat less meat. How much is that actually catching on? I will say, I had an impossible uh, sausage sandwich this morning. It was delicious, um, and we know that those meat alternatives are catching on. But I wonder sort of where we are in that adoption. Yeah, well, there's a ton of new startups every year. There's a lot of activity in the private markets right now around plant-based meat. Um, Beyond Meat's IPO was really interesting in that space. Um, Some of the big meat companies are starting to get into plant-based meat. There's all sorts of different proteins that people are putting out there, even ones made from microbes. So there's a lot of stuff happening there. And what's interesting about it is I talked to an investor who's like trying to be a vegan investor now. There's enough opportunities right now that you could try and adjust your portfolio for a vegan lifestyle in a way that you could just do your food in the grocery aisle more easily in the past. A vegan investor. That's interesting. Wow. Here's a question for you. Can you methane capture this stuff? Before you laugh, I mean, carbon capture is a thing. Yeah. Um, Capturing methane is also a thing. Like, is is that somewhere a solution somehow? There was actually an experiment in Argentina a few years ago where they um, put methane backpacks on cows to capture it, and then they create a whole system. And there's also all this whole network of anaerobic digesters that works with um, cow manure and that sort of thing to try and um, capture the methane from it and, you know, power trucks or or something else with it. Um, But, yeah, it's interesting from a financial perspective that it's hard to invest in this space because there's not a lot of like vegan companies that are public. So you sort of have to screen out stocks that are fossil fuels or cruelty or have some sort of damage to wildlife or deforestation. Wow. All right. Well, this is a great story. Uh, We'll put it out on Twitter. It is on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Emily Chasen, sustainability editor for Bloomberg on the phone from New York City. Low methane meat has arrived. But it's a stopgap. I feel like Alex Steele on my list of garage band names, Methane Backpack. It's a pretty good one. <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, I mean, you know, those things must be heavy. That's that's a bummer for the cows. Uh, but to the point of actual uh, investing, I, I, I completely agree with her on this. So I was talking to one big-name hedge fund manager who uh, used to be really into oil and basic commodities, and his basic goal in life now is to invest in startups that make food better. And yeah. that can be, like, making bees more productive yeah. or making your corn more productive it, it can be it can be technology it can be many different things but like that's his thing now i like um, that so yeah it, the problem is there's just not a lot of public opportunities right there. right well but you know increasingly as the private markets get more liquid in some form or fashion you know maybe that comes on board and venture capitalists you know i mean the idea of constructing a vegan portfolio 
It's kind of interesting. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't know if I could construct a vegan diet. Like, I don't really know what that means. I know I can't eat cheese, milk, eggs. Like, yeah. I can eat carbs. I yeah. get really confused with the vegan thing. Yeah, there's no. It's it's basically no meat, no dairy. I think are the main like a paleo thing. That. Um, no. No, no paleo's different. meat. Paleo is paleo's meat. a lot of meat. But no meat. Okay. Yeah. Vegan's basically uh, nothing you like. Here, yeah. But, I mean, here's really, a grain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, here's some grain. There's no cheese. Like, I can't. Like, I can't. You're like, here's the music. Get out of the segment. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Let's get there with Norm Conley. He's CEO and CIO, Chief Investment Officer at JAG Capital Management, looking after about $1.5 billion, joining us on the phone from St. Louis. Norm, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. What does all this look like there on the ground in, in St. Louis? Uh, the Are we talking about... Uh, We're talking about the crisis here, yeah, like, I mean, yeah. the especially the health crisis. Yeah, sure. So, you know, here in St. Louis, we are, um, you know, we're, we're practicing a lot of social distancing. We've got some state and county and local mandates that uh, I think are probably on the stricter side uh, compared to many areas of the country. We're not quite yet um, as as uh, strict as, for example, Los Angeles here mm-hmm. over the last couple of days, but uh, probably a little bit uh, a little bit stricter than, for example, you know, Georgia. Uh, Colorado, some other states like that. Uh, I know we'll get to markets in a second as wealth manager, but I do want to ask a follow-up on that, Norm, in that um, something that debates, I think, in the market is that do you kind of need a lockdown to then hurt economic growth, or just the headlines are enough to curb investor confidence and curb their spending and make them stay home regardless of what the shutdown uh, laws are? And I wonder what you're noticing is you're kind of like in the middle. Yeah, so... so you know, I, I think that there is uh, a bit of pent-up demand from consumers. I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of folks, and I think, you know, you may have also that uh, consumer you know, savings rates have, have gone up during this crisis. I mean, you, you know, there's just not as many places over the last several months to spend money. Uh, so we're seeing, you know, we're seeing some benefits on the e-commerce side uh, and obviously delivery services. But, um yeah, I, I think that for folks that are lucky enough to to still have a job, uh, we know that there's there's a lot of a lot of folks that don't. Uh, there is some probably some pent up demand going on. So, um, you know, I don't know if that answers your question. I think you know any news that we're getting, we're seeing some of it today that that you know there could be a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Uh, for for this is 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 a positive. Light in the at the end of the tunnel in the form of a vaccine, right? Right. Yeah. Vaccine. I mean, we, you know, we've got the, you know, globally the smartest people in the world right. uh, working on a cure for this. And it, it looks like uh, it looks like, you know, they're getting closer. And, and in the meantime, um, you know, just reading things from the CDC and, and listening to medical professionals, uh, our abilities collectively to treat uh, cases when they arise, even in the absence of a vaccine, 
appears to have improved pretty materially over the last three to four months. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And as you say, you know, all the best minds focus on this probably in a way that we've never seen over the course of human history, certainly modern history. Um, so let's talk some names if we can. I mean, one of the biggest debates I feel like we're all having, and maybe it's not even a debate at this point, is around retail online and brick and mortar. How do you play this as an investor? What names do you look at specifically or not look at? Yeah, so, you know, for, for a number of years now, um, you know, brick-and-mortar, mall-based retail in particular has been under pressure. You know, it, it's just hard to compete with, you know, next-day delivery, two-day delivery uh, via Amazon Prime, for example. Uh, but this crisis has really accelerated it. And I don't have to go into a lot of detail other than, you know, we've seen JCPenney yep. uh, go into bankruptcy, Neiman Marcus re-enter re bankruptcy, um, you know the, the the whole uh, the whole trend has been accelerated and compressed because of uh, because of the lockdowns of physical retail across most of the country. Uh, I mean, we own Amazon; we continue to like it. Um, you know, we think obviously they're a clear beneficiary and you know of the stay-at-home economy, uh, and the stock has you know reflected a lot of that. But I think in addition to that, what what the CEO Jeff Bezos has has done is use this crisis as an opportunity to invest more in, in their business and essentially producing a, uh, a COVID-proof, if I can use that term, supply chain within, within the Amazon ecosystem. And, you know, spending $4 billion, uh, you know, is what he's announced that they're going to be spending in the current quarter on this. Gosh, it's just, it's really hard for uh, other retailers, certainly physical retailers, to, to match that. So, Norm, are, are you at all playing the recovery trade? Because I understand on a fundamental basis what you're saying about Amazon. It's also obviously caught up in the tech rally that we've seen, except for the last few days. Are you doing the recovery bet? Uh, yeah, you know, that's interesting. We, you may be reading our mail, or uh, we've been talking about it internally with our team. Um, I guess the short answer is uh, we are playing the recovery of that to the extent to which our process and, and, and uh, you know, our longstanding process allows us to do so. So, you know, we're growth investors. Uh, there are probably a lot of really good values uh, that will be apparent, certainly in hindsight, say six or 12 months from now, uh, that go into that recovery basket. So you could look at, you know, for example, distressed travel-related companies, uh, so maybe, you know, some of the mall-based retailers that are going to survive, you know, they're really cheap. That's not our game, though. We, we let our, um, our value brethren, brethren uh, pick those really cheap stocks that are going to ultimately work their way out of distress and, 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 uh, and recover. Um, but, you know, there are, there are companies that, that, you know, we can own, and, you know, one of them, uh, Centos, which is a uniform company, probably the dominant yeah. uh, work uniform company, you know, we think they're going to benefit from, uh, you know, from normalization, you know, as and if and when it occurs. One more name uh, I'd love to ask you about if I can, Norm, and I think this is one that's interesting to both Alex and me as uh, watchers of the stock market, but also as consumers, Lululemon. Uh, that's been a fascinating name to watch in, in many cases and maybe has defied some expectations throughout this. Maybe it's everybody working in, you know, leggings, but uh, what do you make of it? Uh, yeah, so Lululemon is, you know, one of our largest holdings and we've owned it for you know, several years. Um, 
really fascinating company. Obviously, you know, made their name with uh, leggings and, and, you know, yoga pants, mostly for, uh, for the female women market. Uh, but over the last several years, has really made a concerted effort and, and by and large, has been successful in expanding into, uh, into men's clothes. Um, so, you know, we really like the name. Uh, they're having a lot of success globally in glo- growing right. their brand. And then I was really intrigued, uh, and I guess I like uh, the acquisition that they made pretty recently of Mir, yeah. uh, which is a company they invested about a million bucks in, I guess, a year, year and a half ago. Um, and ultimately here bought for $500 million, which, as crazy as it sounds, uh, for a pretty public company, uh, that's about five times projected sales. Right. Uh, so we really, we really like it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll have to talk more about that one next time you join us. Uh, good to catch up with you, Norm Conley. Of course, joining us from St. Louis, Chief Executive, Chief Investment Officer over at Jack Capital Management. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.